turn to your word this morning. We pray that you would just shine your light, your holy light, into our hearts, Lord. Convict us, transform us by your word as we study it this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Who writes your rules? That's the name of our message today. Who writes your rules? That was actually a slogan um, that I used to have written on a jacket that I wore in high school when I was a punk, when I, when I actually had hair and did crazy things with it, which is probably why I don't have any now. Um, but the question, is, it was really, for me at the time, it was really kind of supposed to be a rhetorical one. It was kind of the same as the slogan, uh, you know, question authority, for me anyway. But it's a really good question, actually, if, if you think about it. Who writes your rules? Whose rules do you live by? My answer now, praise the Lord, is vastly different than it was 25 years ago. Thankfully, at the time, my answer would have been something like, uh, I do, you know, like I'm making vows to myself. I do. Uh, I write my rules was my answer back then. My answer today would be something like, God sets the rules. He makes the rules. I try to live by them the best I can. I know I fail miserably, but his grace is enough. Uh, I would hope that that would be your answer too. I would hope that that would be anybody's answer if I were to ask them that question. But at the same time, I know that if we were to look into the lives of the people around us throughout the week, their answer would sound, would probably sound more like my answer from 25 years ago than my answer today. Now, as we continue our study in the book of Judges, uh, last one for the year, we will see them fall away from God once again. They're going to turn their hearts away from God, bowing down to the gods of the culture, the false gods, the idols of the culture. Why? Why do they keep doing this? Because They want to write their own rules. They want to live by their own rules. They want to do as they please. They don't want to have to answer to anyone, including God. And so the result is once again going to be idolatry. Now maybe you've noticed as we've been going through the book of Judges that these people who are raised up by God to deliver Israel are... The judges are becoming less and less and less ideal as they've been progressively becoming more and more broken as we go along. Gideon was an adulterer who had many wives and concubines. He was a murderer. Uh, He didn't want to be called king uh, because he knew that that was God's rightful place, that only God could reign over his people. And yet he sure demanded that he be treated like a king. He sure acted like a king. Ironically, he even named his illegitimate son Abimelech, which meant my father is the king. And then uh, there was Jephthah, who was basically this illegitimate child turned crime boss who had probably not been too exposed to the scriptures, if he'd been exposed to them at all. It certainly doesn't seem like he was because he had so much lack of knowledge when it came to God. He was basically this crime boss who never really broke that mold. And he didn't know because he didn't know God. He didn't know the scriptures that well. He knew God. He had faith in God, but he just didn't know what pleased God. And so what he ends up doing is offering his own daughter as a burnt sacrifice to God in exchange for victory on the battlefield. 
So these judges are becoming more and more and more depraved. They're becoming more and more and more broken as we go through the book. But these leaders are just a symptom of the brokenness that's plaguing the nation of Israel. You know, if these guys, if these people, these judges advocating godly living were the ones who were the holiest in the land, the most righteous in the land, can you imagine how bad the rest of the nation must have gotten? Now, the symptoms flared up again in the previous passage with the tribe of Ephraim coming in and threatening the life of Jephthah because they were envious of the fact that he was victorious in battle uh, against the people who were suppressing all of God's people as a whole, the, the Ammonites. And so the result was civil war. They pushed a button with Jephthah, and the war was on with tens of thousands of people being put to death. As we're going through the book, it's just becoming worse and worse and worse, even though God keeps raising up people. And so after the Gileadites had defeated the Ephraimites, Jephthah died just six years into his judging of Israel. And that leaves something of a void to be filled. And one of the things that we'll see today is that the people who God raises up to fill that void are following the same pattern. They're they're, they're following just like everybody else, becoming more and more depraved. They aren't really any better than than Gideon or Jephthah. Just like you have major prophets, like when you you open your Bible, you know, you find big books of, uh, you know, big books written by prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, uh, and you have minor prophets. Those are the smaller books like Joel, Obadiah, and Micah. You also have minor and major judges. Now, we've seen actually a few uh, minor judges, just a small handful, Shamgar, Tola, and Jair. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've, we've also seen major judges, for example, Othniel, Ehud, Gideon, Deborah, for example. So what you see between the lines is that the earliest judges, the, the, the first judges, Shamgar and Othniel, are probably the most ideal. They were the, the closest uh, to being godly leaders. But as time went on, these leaders are becoming less and less ideal. They're, they're just becoming further and further away from God. And so as the text continues following this civil war between the Ephraimites and the Gileadites, we're introduced to some more minor judges. Uh, let's just take a, take a look at them one by one, starting in verse 8. After him, that is, after Jephthah. He died after six years. After him, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now let's just be honest. This is kind of weird. Um, he, has, uh, he, he gave 30 of his daughters to marriage, to men outside of his clan, and he imports 30 women for his sons to marry from outside of his clan. In other words, what he's doing is he's creating alliances with people groups outside of his clan. He's creating alliances, political alliances, with families outside of his own clan, which, in the time, which at the time was absolutely not the norm. He's basically using his kids as bargaining chips for political power. 
And many of the, the judges mentioned in the book of Hebrews uh, as heroes of the faith, you know, we, we've, we've covered them, but Ibzan is one guy that's, that's not in there. He gets three verses out of the entire Bible right here, and not a single one of these verses says anything positive or godly about him. And so he's a picture, he, he's, he's a strong indication of just the increasing depravity the compromise that's plaguing God's people because there's only one way to have 60 or more children and that's to have more than one wife because one woman can't bear 60 children. So he has multiple wives, possibly concubines. He's just like Gideon. Remember Gideon did the same thing. He had multiple wives. He had at least one concubine. Ibzan's living like a king. He's acting like a king. Why? Because he writes his rules. And apparently he wanted to be just like the world around him. Strangely, Jephthah, who just murdered his daughter a few, you know, a few verses back, uh, Jephthah and Ibzon, um, Ibzon basically prostitutes his daughters. These are the only two judges whose daughters are, uh, are mentioned as being a part of their story, and they follow on the heels of one another. Just an interesting side note. No other judges are even said to have had uh, daughters, although I'm sure that some of them uh, at least possibly did. But the tragic story of Ibzan is that he used his position as the man, as the person raised up by God to judge Israel for personal gain. He abused his position It was all about him. He abuses his office for the sake of establishing and growing political power in his family. And what's missing? What's missing from his very short story? The same thing that was missing from Jephthah's story. No peace, no rest in the land. Now, God's not mentioned in what he did either, but we don't know. But instead, what we see is there's just a growing sense of godlessness and a growing sense of rebellion among God's people. Let's continue. Next judge. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. So this guy, he's got no legacy. He's, he's got... Nothing. Nothing's really said about him. All we know is that he judged Israel for 10 years. Maybe he didn't fall into a serious sin to be remembered by, and that's why it's so short. But he apparently didn't do anything to be remembered by, anything positive to be remembered by either. He was a minor judge who, who lived, who led Israel in, in judging them, and, and then he died. So maybe he was just kind of your, your normal kind of guy. You know, that's the conclusion that a lot of commentators reached. You know, that's, that's great. Because um, God uses normal people all the time to serve him uh, as a means of carrying out his plans. God carrying out his plans and purposes. But here's the thing. Elon didn't deliver Israel from anyone, even though, as we'll see, the nation was once again turning their hearts away from God. And there were enemies among them. The next judge, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 to 15. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. 
Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And so once again, what we see here is that we have a judge who has an enormous number of children, which you know, we, we all know what that means, right? He has a whole army of wives and concubines, and he's living like a king. Why, why would somebody want that many sons? Why would that even be significant? He'd want that many sons because that's his way of ensuring that his dynasty continues beyond his own years. That's what kings do. And so that's what Abdon does. That's how kings established and solidified their dynasties for generations to come after their own lives. Like Ibzon and and like Gideon, he's living and acting like a king, worldly, worldly. He's remembered for the donkeys that his sons and grandsons rode on. Uh, You know, from a Western perspective, I think, wow, what what an odd thing to be remembered for. He had all these donkeys in his family, but, you know, in all seriousness, what seems like uh, you know, something that's kind of a comical side note to us, actually, you know, coming from our Western mindset, it's actually, in an Eastern context, evidence of a type of royal power. So once again, you've got a guy who's abusing his position, using it for his own gain. Now, before we continue, there are three things that I want to make note of. First of all, this is the last of the minor um, non-cyclical judges. You know, this isn't, they, they don't uh, begin and end a cycle where God's people turn away and call out to them and God rescues. That's not what the minor ones do. So uh, this is the last one of the minor judges. Secondly, look where he gets buried. In the hill country of the Amalekites. He doesn't even get buried in his own land. The indication is that Israel's been infiltrated. The indication is that God's people have absorbed into and have been consumed by the surrounding nations. God's people are caught here looking, acting, and thinking just like the world. It's not a good sign, that's for sure. The third thing I'd have us notice is that not a single one of these minor judges are said to have saved, rescued, or delivered Israel. And it's not that Israel didn't have any enemies at the time. It's not that they weren't being infiltrated or oppressed. In addition to being their own worst enemy, we know that they had plenty of enemies that they were surrounded by, that they were infiltrated by. And it's even the godliest people in the world at this time, even the godliest people in the land are worldly. And they're not lifting a finger to do anything about the spiritual decline of Israel. And so therefore, with all this in mind, it's really no surprise what comes next. When we turn to the next chapter, the first verse says, And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now keep in mind that when, when you're studying the Bible, when, you, when you're reading the Bible, one of the most important things you can, you can know about um, how to study the Bible is you want to make note of any and all repetition. 
it's almost always extremely significant. It's the author's way of kind of underlining and accentuating a point. You know, for example, a parent will, uh, they'll give their child some instructions and then they'll reword it and then they'll, they'll say it again and again. And, you know, of course, by that time, your kids are like, shut up, dad. And you're like, no, it, it's just that I want to make sure that you get it. See, there's a reason we do it. We want to make sure that you, you get it. And so we're, we're now entering into what's going to be the final cycle of the judges, and this is always how it starts, isn't it? This is always how it starts. Here's the repetition. We've seen this phrase a total of uh, five times in, in five previous passages. If you like to study the significance of numbers in the Bible, um, that means that this is the sixth and final passage in which we'll see the phrase, did evil in the sight or in the eyes of the Lord. And what's significant about the number six? A lot of things. The number six basically represents fallen humanity and our weakness against sin in our fallen state. So this is the sixth and final instance of this phrase being used. I do want to note that the book of Judges ends with a very similar phrase, however. It concludes by saying basically the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Judges 21 verse 25 says, in those days, this is summarizing the whole book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the author is making an extremely important point. He doesn't want us to miss what is actually the central theme of this book, which can be summed up in one very short, very succinct sentence. We don't write the rules. We don't write the rules. We don't determine individually or collectively what is right or what is morally wrong. Society as a whole doesn't determine what's morally right and what's morally wrong. The law of the land is not even the ultimate authority on what is morally right and what is morally wrong. God and God alone sovereignly determines what is right and wrong. God alone determines what is good and what is evil. And we often dismiss what a person thinks to be morally right or wrong with the phrase, you know, ah, yeah, you know, to each his own. You know, kind of like, I I like vanilla, you like chocolate. Yeah, we we can just get along and just assume, you know, everything's honky-dory. To each his own. No. No, not, not when it comes to morality. Not when it comes to good and evil, not when it comes to sin. Only God determines what is good and evil. And it's His sovereign and holy determination that sets the boundaries and the guidelines with which, within which we must act. Make no mistake about it. If you were to have gone, you know, take a time machine back to Israel and ask the people during this time, uh, you know, if what they were doing was evil... They would have said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm doing what's good. I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm, I'm, I might even be better than everybody else. Of course I'm not doing anything evil. That is to say that everything that they were doing, or at least most of what they were doing, were things that they thought were perfectly good and morally upstanding. Do you think the answer would be any different If you were to ask the average American citizen today, 
if they think that they are doing evil? Do most women who abort their babies think that they're doing something evil? No. Do most people who are fighting for homosexual rights think that they're doing something evil? To the contrary. They think they're doing something good. But let me ask this. Why did Gideon live and act like a king? Because it was right in his own eyes. Why did he have multiple wives and concubines? Because it was right in his own eyes. Why did Jephthah murder his daughter? Because it was right in his own eyes. Let's get just a little bit more general. Why did God's people, why why did Israel continually worship the false gods and idols of the land? Because it was right in their own eyes. Why did the Nazis murder six million Jews? Because it was right in their own eyes. Why is America in such a steep moral decline right now? Why are we celebrating sin? Because it seems right in our own eyes. The truth is that our opinions about morality, about sin, are absolutely meaningless. They, they mean absolutely nothing. Don't think for one second that God will be moved by our opinions or our preferences about sin and morality. He doesn't care if the whole human race agrees or disagrees with him when it comes to calling sin, sin. Because he's the one who establishes moral boundaries, and he's the one who judges those who cross the line. Sin is a reflection. Evil is is a reflection of his holy nature. It's sin or it's evil because God is holy, and he can't tolerate those types of things. And the culture will tell you, you know, what's right and what's wrong is just arbitrary. Friends, sin is anything but arbitrary. God doesn't just sit there and say, oh, you know, today I, I think I'll just outlaw premarital sex, you know, just, just to do it, just because it's something that I can do because I'm God. It's not arbitrary. The reason he sets these moral boundaries is because, A, it offends him, and B, it hurts us. He's looking out for our best interests. He's looking out for what's good for us. God's nature, friends, is anything but arbitrary. And so the contrast here between the people who are doing what's right in their own eyes and God declaring those things to be wicked teaches us two very, very important things about the nature of sin. First of all, it teaches us that sin isn't Sin just because it violates our own personal consciences. Sin isn't sin because it you know, doesn't fit in with our, our personal standards or our, our, our standard code of conduct. Sin isn't even sin because society says it is or isn't. Rather, God and God alone defines sin. And thus to sin means to live in a way that violates God's sovereign will. If you've ever noticed, people love, especially skeptics, skeptics about Christianity love to make two uh, actually conflicting claims. These claims actually conflict when it comes to Christianity and morality. First of all, there are skeptics and people who will say that society determines morality and, and that moral standards are evolving just like humanity is evolving. 
Which is a very interesting claim because many of those very same people will say that they reject the God of the Bible and they reject Christianity and the, and the Christian God because the Bible approves of things like slavery. Now, think about this for just a second. First of all, they're passing moral judgment on the Bible. But they say that, that morality is, is changing, that it's, that it's evolving so what's the moral foundation for saying that something like slavery is wrong? They're, they're judging yesterday's morality by today's morality. And if morality is changing, you can't do that. If morality is evolving, then morality is completely subjective. That is, it changes. It's changing constantly. And so by their worldview, there's nothing uh, that's objectively immoral. Because it's always changing. The standard's always changing. And yet their claim is that God is objectively immoral. Funny how that works. But the only way to pass judgment on previous generations is for them to use today's standards of morality. How can we say that there was anything wrong with it at the time if moral boundaries are constantly changing and if they're always subject to change? Do you see how slippery this slope is? If morality is not objective, that is, if we determine, if society determines what is and isn't sin, then what it really boils down to is personal opinion. Do we really think that morality is personal opinion? I mean, if there is no objective, universal definition of sin that applies to absolutely every person in every time, in every place, then it's only our opinion that somebody like Mother Teresa is more moral than Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. That it would be just our opinion. It would be, it's just our opinion that it's wrong to murder an innocent person. It's just our opinion that it would be better to feed, morally better to feed a homeless person than to let them starve. Really, is that really subjective? I don't think so. I don't think anybody really agrees with that. Common sense tells us otherwise. Is it really just our opinion? That would be the only conclusion if... We're the ones who define sin. So it's a good thing that we don't. Because tomorrow it might become you know, perfectly moral to, to beat up a bald guy or something. You know? It's a good thing that we don't define sin. God does. God's the only one who sovereignly defines sin. If good and evil are defined by what is right in my eyes, or in your eyes, or in society's eyes, common sense tells us that what you have is just anarchy. Everybody writes their own rules. Maybe what's good for one person is to go around beating people up and you know you, you, you could approach them and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you beating up all these people? And his answer could be, hey man, this is evolution. Survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. See, in his eyes, he's doing something good. And now it's just his opinion against ours. Because if each sin, if, if sin is defined by each person individually, nobody can question him. Nobody can pass judgment on him. If you take an ethics class in college, one of the things they'll do is they'll, they'll give you these ridiculous hypothetical scenarios and have you determine what the, the most ethical uh, solution is or the best solution for the, uh, for the situation is. For example, let's say that you have an airplane that crashes in the middle of an ocean and you have six people who survive and they're floating in a life raft which is only uh, big enough to hold four people. 
And of the six people, one, uh, we'll, we'll say one's a doctor, one is a child, uh, one is a stay-at-home mom, uh, one's a teacher, one works in fast food, uh, that's five, and we'll just say one's a pastor. He goes first, right? No. Uh, hopefully not, you know, but the weight of the six people, they keep causing uh, the raft to dump them all into the water. They need to get down to four people. And so the assignment of your class will be to, to state your case for what the solution is, what they should do. Obviously, somebody has to jump out, and somebody's going to have to die. And then when everybody in the class has a totally different answer, they'll say, see, morality really is all subjective. Really? Because if, if we determine what is truly moral or, or immoral, then you, why is there even a dilemma? I mean, somebody could say, I don't see what the problem is. Okay, you know, you've got six people on a raft. It's only, it can only hold four. Why is that a moral dilemma? What's the ethical problem with, with that? Just let them all die. Hmm. So, yeah, we don't determine what is or isn't immoral. It's not subjective. The truth is that each one of us individually must admit that our own eyes are an inadequate and an insufficient means of determining what is and what is not sin. The Bible's solution to the question of who determines sin is the right one. God. God is the one who sovereignly determines what is sin. And it doesn't matter what the world's best sociologists say. It doesn't matter what the world's best philosophers say. It doesn't matter if the entire culture agrees or disagrees. Sin is sin because God says so. Period. The second thing that this teaches us about sin is that sin is so deceptive. Sin is so incredibly deceptive. You and I are so easily deceived by it if we're not careful. What's our knee-jerk reaction when it comes to sin? Is it to, to redirect or rationalize? The book of Judges up to this point seems to teach us pretty clearly, demonstrate for us pretty clearly that we tend to rationalize our sin to the point of being in, in just complete denial about it. And it just happens so easy. The thing is, everybody instinctively knows what's right and wrong. We instinctively know that. It's, it's actually programmed into us. God programmed us to have a default moral basis. He even programmed us to know, at least on an intellectual level, that he exists. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness... And unrighteousness of men, it's revealed, they see it, they know what's right or wrong. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And that might cause you to wonder, you know, if everybody knows that God exists, 
Why are there atheists? The answer is right here. Because in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The truth that God exists, the truth that he is all-powerful, and the truth that he is perfectly holy. Everyone is born with this knowledge about God. It's evident in the world. It's evident in creation all around us. It's evident everywhere outside of us. But it's also inside of us. Paul writes in the next chapter, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they don't have the scriptures to tell them what's right and wrong. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Ah, the conscience. Everybody has one of those. Everybody's born with one. Everybody starts out with one. That's the signature of God written on the heart. So why do we sin If God wrote the law on our hearts, thus making us instinctively aware of what it is and what it isn't, of what is sin and what isn't sin, why do we sin? Because people reject the will of God, both at a conscious and at an unconscious level. They justify their sin, they justify their rebellion. In one way or another, we've all done it. We all know how it works, because every single one of us has sinned. Now, we don't know exactly what Israel's justification for sinning was, what their rationale was for sinning, but we've learned over and over again that it's idolatry that's at the root of their sin. And it's the same for us. Idols aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but they can be good things that become too high of a priority for us. Jesus, and Jesus alone, He's the only one who deserves to be our top priority. But what we do, because we're sinners, is we insert so many things into our lives that compete with Jesus for the proverbial throne and lordship of our hearts. And with that said, there's just a thin line between something being okay and and good and that thing being an idol. There's a, a thin line between things like loving our families and allowing our families to become an idol. There's a thin line between being committed to your work and enjoying your work and allowing it to become the very purpose for your existence, the very idol for which We live and breathe. There's a thin line between wanting what's best for our kids and then subjecting our kids to idolatry. That's scary, isn't it? We subject our kids to idolatry because we're idolaters. It's a hard pill for those of us who are parents to swallow. But the truth is that our kids need Jesus. And they need Jesus to be their highest priority. They need Jesus more than they need sports. They need Jesus more than they even need school. They need Jesus even more than they need their health. And they even need Jesus more than they need us as their parents. Sin, like idols, is so incredibly deceptive by nature. They can seem, they they can look 
so good on the surface. They can even look moral on the surface. But when those things become more important to us and more endearing to us than Jesus, we've crossed that thin line. And we're doing what seems right in our own eyes. Friends, brothers and sisters, it is so, so important for us to examine ourselves regularly. And I know that I talk about this kind of stuff all the time, and I know that I risk driving people away when I talk about things like sin and and, and constantly examining ourselves. But friends, sin is so poisonous. It's so poisonous, not not only to our bodies, because there can be health effects to it, but mostly to our souls. And it's a poison that we sometimes drink so often that we will lose sight of the fact that it's a sin. We so easily become numb to it, immune to it. We don't even see what it's doing to us or how it's affecting our relationships with other people or how it's driving a wedge between us and the Lord. Peter writes this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-9. to He says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So this all starts with with faith. That's the thing that saves us. Faith, trusting in Jesus for our salvation. That's what saves us. That's what pleases God. It starts with faith. And Peter says, add to it. Supplement it. That's, That's what sanctification is all about. Add virtue, first of all. What's virtue? Virtue is moral purity. Virtue is abstaining from sin. It's recognizing sin and and staying clear of it. And then add knowledge to your virtue. And self-control to your knowledge. And steadfastness, that is uh, uh, consistency, to your self-control. And so on and so on. And then he says, whoever lacks these things, whoever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's writing about believers. He's writing about people who have been forgiven and they're becoming numb to sin. They're forgetting that sin is something that offends God and that they've been cleansed from it. He's warning us about becoming numb to sin, and he's warning us about how easily we can slip into apathy when it comes to our walk with Jesus. Peter says that if we have these qualities, they will prevent us from becoming unfruitful. And friends, the Christian life is about being fruitful. What prevents us from growing in these qualities? Apathy. Sin. And so we have to examine ourselves and make sure that sin isn't preventing us from growing in our walk with the Lord because it happens to believers all the time. We have to examine ourselves and make sure that sin isn't preventing us from being fruitful for the Lord and his kingdom. Now the cycle that we're going to be 
uh, entering into at the beginning of next year, in the, here in the study of Judges, is the cycle in which Samson is raised up. We see here that God hands them over to their false gods and, and to their idols for 40 years. They subject themselves to oppression for about as long as I've been alive. This is the longest time of discipline that we've seen in any of the cycles by far. In in the whole book of Judges, this is the longest one. The next longest was 20 years. And during these 40 years, what we'll see is is that not once did the people call out to God for help. The cycle's going to be different than the previous ones where the people finally get sick of being oppressed and they cry out to God. This time they don't cry out to God. They never begged God for deliverance. They don't ask to be forgiven. There's no repentance. There's no confession of sin. They have become numb to sin. And so the lesson here is to not follow their example, but to go the opposite direction. Instead, may we constantly remember that we are saved by grace. Saved by God's grace. It's our only hope. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. And that's got to be something that we just keep at the forefront of our minds. We're going to sing a song here in just a minute. And I'd ask you to take that time really to to examine yourself, to to reflect. Take this time to, to look at yourself, to look in your heart, to talk to God. Take this time to recognize the sins that may tempt you. Take this time to acknowledge any sin that may have some type of hold on you. And I'm just going to ask you to to, to just bring it to Jesus. Just bring it before the Lord. Confess it and repent of it in the silence of your heart because he's promised that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing promise. His grace really is amazing. Jesus truly is our greatest need. He's our rescuer. He's our redeemer. So draw closer to him. Turn your heart more completely to him. Every one of us has room to do that. Because when you do that, when you turn your heart more to him, by default, you are turning further and further away from the false gods that are competing for your heart. I'm going to close with just two questions that I I just... There's no right or wrong answer. I just want you to think about as we, uh, as we close the service out. Again, there are no right or wrong answers here, but be honest with yourself about these things. Number one, how will you ensure in the coming week that God, that Jesus, is constantly your highest priority in life? And number two, what difference should that make? in the way that you live your life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us courage as we confess to you that we often struggle, every single one of us, we often struggle to keep our priorities straight. And we confess, Lord, that we have brought things into our lives in competition against you for our highest priority, for the proverbial thrones of our hearts. 
And so in the silence of our hearts, O God, will you shine your holy light and reveal to us any sins that we may unknowingly struggle with or even things that we knowingly struggle with. In the silence of our hearts, Lord, we confess them to you. We count on your promise that if we confess our sin, you will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. For the sake of your Son and your glory, forgive us, cleanse us, and renew us in order that we may live for the sake of serving you and glorifying you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who died to redeem and cleanse us. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.